0: Chapter 12 On My Own Two Feet The morphine that had once dulled the pain in my body had dissipated, giving way to a fresh round of pain that woke me out of my sleep. I peered open my eyes to see rays from the sun streaking into the room. The pain felt even worse and felt as though it was more magnified than I had remembered from the IED blast originally. I wanted to yell and scream for the nurse to bring me another dose of morphine, but I hesitated to scream because I knew that the scream would only cause my pain to surge. I laid in bed, gritting my teeth, trying to brace the waves of pain rolling through my body. I was able to spot the nurse call button on the side of my bed. I pressed the button and anxiously awaited the arrival of a U.S. Army nurse with the dose of morphine. After waiting for what seemed like an eternity of pain and suffering, a nurse appeared in my room with a new vial of morphine. The nurse took the morphine and injected it into my IV port. That wonderful, warm, fuzzy feeling fell upon my body again, and the pain slowly vanished, and I fell back asleep. I was awakened by a U.S. Army doctor some time later. He detailed to me a list of my injuries. Private, you got banged up pretty good. Your left arm is completely shattered. The owner, radius, and humerus were destroyed. Your shoulders separated, you sustained a significant blow to your head, which left you with a giant contusion on your head, and your back and hips are completely out of alignment. We need to get you to Landstuhl Army Hospital in Germany to operate on you. Why does it hurt for me to talk and breathe? I questioned the doctor. The doctor explained to me that the pressure from the shock wave of the blast rattled my insides. I did not have any internal injuries, as far as I could tell, but I would be sore and hurting for a while. The doctor explained that I would be put on the next helicopter flight from the Green Zone to LSA, Logistics Support Area, Anaconda. From there, I would fly to RAB, Ramstein Air Base, and be driven to LRMC, Landstuhl Regional Medical Center, in Landstuhl, Germany, for further treatment. After getting treated at LRMC, I would be flown back to the States to Wormack, Walter Reed Army Medical Center, where I would finish my treatment. I was told to get comfortable because the next flight to LSA Anaconda did not leave until tomorrow night. I lay in the dark void of my hospital bed, staring at the ceiling with thoughts running back and forth in my mind. It seemed like every time I closed my eyes, my mind traveled back in time to me waking up in Alpha 26 right after the explosion. I could still hear Lieutenant Michael screaming in my ear, trying to see if I was still alive. Every time I closed my eyes, I was trapped in the prison of my mind, and I could not get out. My only saving grace was the morphine. It dulled my physical pain, but it soon started to dull my mental anguish and help me escape the thoughts and sounds in my head. Boom! A loud explosion sounded and rippled through the hospital, causing my bed to shake violently and waking me out of my sleep. The hospital was a big target for insurgents and was constantly under mortar and rocket attack. I would fall back asleep, only to be waken up again by more explosions. Wake up, soldier. Your ride to LSA Anaconda is here, a U.S. Army nurse told me. I was wheeled outside into the cold Iraqi night. The hospital staff turned me over to the waiting UH UH-60 Black Hawk crew, ready to take me to my next destination. We got them from here, the UH UH-60 crew chief said to the medical staff. We're going to take good care of you. We are here to help you get home back to your family, the crew chief said to me. The Black Hawk crew members lifted my gurney into the aircraft and strapped me down to the floor. The crew were strangers to me, but I felt safe and secure in their charge, and I believed with all of my heart that they were going to help me get back home. Someone then placed a pair of earplugs in my ears to protect what was left of my hearing from the roar of the dual T-700 engines and the chopping sound of the rotor blades. Even though the earplugs muffled the sounds, I could hear and feel the powerful chopping of the rotor blades as the helicopter started to lift off the deck. Within a matter of moments, we were airborne and en route to LSA Anaconda. I felt the Black Hawk quickly bank to the right, and for a moment, I thought I was in danger of sliding out of the helicopter. As I stared out of the open Black Hawk door into the night sky, I was captivated by the thousands of glowing lights radiating from the sprawling Baghdad metropolis. The lights from the green zone slowly started to fade into the darkness as we coasted through the night sky. As the lights passed by under us, I started to think that somewhere on the ground below us lurking in the darkness, there was an insurgent with an RPG or Sam surface to air missile, aiming at us in the black Hawk. As we flew overhead, I looked out of the door expecting to see the smoke trail of an RPG or missile streaking towards us from the ground. I trusted and believed in the Black Hawk crew escorting me to my next destination on my journey home. Still, my experience on the battlefield and what I had always been taught in training reminded me that the enemy always gets a vote. Thankfully, there were no attempts to shoot us down. The city lights disappeared and we were flying in complete darkness. It was at that moment I realized that my war was over. Not only was my war over... But I was also angered at the fact that I had never had the opportunity to fire a single shot at the enemy. I had been shot at, blown up multiple times, and seen my brothers get severely wounded. Yet I never got the chance to do what we do best in the infantry, kill the enemy. My first and only Black Hawk helicopter ride ended as we touched down on the LSA Anaconda helipad. We are here. This is as far as we go. You take care of yourself and get better. Thank you for what you did for our country, the crew chief thanked me. No, thank you, sir. I appreciate the ride. I yelled back at him over the loud mechanical noise of the Blackhawk. I was greeted by another crew of medical staff dressed in Army DCU's and full battle rattle. Welcome to Mortaritaville, one of them yelled over the deafening sound of the Blackhawk rotors. LSA Anaconda, a.k.a. Balad Air Base, was situated 40 miles north of Baghdad. The nickname, Mortaritaville, had been bestowed upon LSA Anaconda by the troops who called it home due to the never-ending amount of mortar attacks they came under from the local insurgents. Like the Green Zone, it was an easy point of attack, so the insurgents focused much of their firepower and attention on the airbase. As the medical staff carried me off the Black Hawk, the overwhelming power of the rotors created a large dust storm and almost ripped the multiple layers of blankets off of me. They rushed me from the tarmac into a large tent that was filled with other American troops who had been wounded and earned an early ticket back home from the war. The medical staff informed us that we would only be at our current location for a few hours because a C-17 Globemaster transport aircraft was en route to our current location to take us to RAB in Germany. I looked around the tent and took notice of the assortment of troops around me. I was not in the best physical condition after my encounter with an IED, but I was better off than many of the others I saw. Soldiers and Marines laid upon litters and gurneys scattered throughout the tent. Some of them were missing limbs and sported blood-soaked bandages that absorbed the blood from the fresh bullet and shrapnel wounds. A young Hispanic Marine stood next to me, dressed in his Marine camis. I gazed up at his name tag on his chest, which read Martinez. It looks like they got you good. What happened? Martinez questioned me. To be honest, I'm not 100% sure. I know we got hit by an IED, but that's it. Is there anything I can do for you? Martinez asked. My morphine is starting to wear off. Can you get a nurse for me, please? Without hesitation, Martinez took off in search of a nurse to help relieve my pain. He returned a short time later with the nurse who had a fully loaded syringe of morphine. I thanked Martinez for his help with a tremendous amount of gratitude because he did not have to do what he did. As my pain eased, I conversed with Martinez. I looked at him and tried to figure out why he was amongst those of us who had been wounded, so I decided to ask. We were driving down the road, and an IED went off. I got my bell rung pretty good. I have a concussion, and my ribs are cracked, Martinez responded to my inquiry. Yet again, a stranger, someone who I had never met, just like the Black Hawk crew, went above and beyond to help me in my time of need. Not only did Martinez help me that one single time, but he practically became my battle buddy and never left my side. A soldier and a Marine, one Black, one Hispanic, fighting the same war in different parts of the country as part of a different fighting force were joined at the hip. Despite having numerous injuries and excruciating pain, he took it upon himself to help me deal with my pain and my inability to care for myself. If he saw me trying to sit up, he would rush over to me, put his arms behind me and help lift me up. It had been a while since I talked to my family. With the help of Martinez, I walked over to the phone so that I could call home and inform and update my family. I spoke briefly to everyone back home who mattered and let them know that I loved them and I was doing okay. As I scrolled through my small green phone book, I saw Staff Sergeant Linder's number in my book. Staff Sergeant Linder was home on R&R. Even though he and I were not on good terms and never saw eye to eye, I figured that despite all the bad blood between us, that he would care enough about me as a person to say, I am glad you are okay and that you are still alive, considering I had almost been killed in action a few days ago. I picked up the phone and dialed the number. Hey, Staff Sergeant Linder, it's Pitts. Yeah? What do you want? He said in a stern and grouchy tone. I just wanted to fill you in. I got hit by an I.D. a few days ago on patrol. I was wounded badly. I'm on my way to Germany to get treated. Okay. I was then greeted by the cold sound of silence and Staff Sergeant Linder hanging up the phone on me. With that simple and single incident, I immediately concluded that all the time I had been under Staff Sergeant Linder's chain of command, all those close calls with IEDs that he did not care about my life or if I made it back home to my family alive. My anger and internal rage started to swell inside of me again, but I had no one to take it out on, nor the means to do so. Buried deep below my anger and rage were feelings that I had chosen not to expose myself to and had convinced myself that I was void of and incapable of feeling. And for the first time in a long time, I was feeling those feelings. I could feel the hurt and the sting of betrayal. How could this person, who was supposed to be my leader and care about me and my well-being, not care enough about me to say, get well soon? I know I was not the greatest soldier to ever put on a uniform. I made plenty of mistakes, but wasn't I deserving enough of at least having a leader who cared about my life? Was I that bad of a soldier? Pitts, our ride is here. It's time to go. Martinez shook me awake. I looked around, and the room was filled with even more wounded soldiers and a large number of military medical staff. The room was in perfect chaos as the medical staff started screening and preparing us for a medical flight to Landstuhl, Germany. A team of military medical staff approached me with the gurney. We're going to put you on this gurney and wheel you out to the flight line and load you up for your flight. I was in pain, and I could barely walk but my pride as a member of the Fort Benning Blue Cord Boys Club started to rear its ugly head. I'm not getting on that gurney, I yelled. Well, soldier, you don't have much of a choice. You can't walk on your own, so you are not with the walking wounded. When I crossed the burn from Kuwait into Iraq six months ago, I did it standing on my own two feet under my own power. If I was going to be leaving Iraq for good and not on my own terms, There was no way I would exit this war, my war, laid on my back and be helplessly whisked away. Hell no, you are not willing me out of here, I yelled at someone with a lot more rank on their collar than me. Just as things were about to get heated, Martinez stepped into the situation. Martinez grabbed me by my waist and helped to lift me off my cot. He then put my right arm around his shoulders, looked at the medical staff and said, He's walking wounded. Well then, you all need to get in line for the walking wounded headed to the flight line. With Martinez's assistance, I hobbled out of the tent and onto the flight line where there was a United States Air Force C-17 Globemaster III sitting on the runway with its ramp down, waiting to receive the huddled masses of wounded. It was pitch black outside, but the lights from inside the C-17 ripped through the darkness and illuminated everything around us. The light was so bright and so beautiful. It was like God's own hands shining through the night, waiting for me to walk into his embrace. I knew that when I stepped into that light, I would be another step closer to getting back home to my family and friends. A long line of walking wounded soldiers and Marines flowed down the ramp to the tarmac. Martinez and I found ourselves at the end of the line, waiting for our turn to walk up the ramp and take a seat inside. I peered to my right and saw a military medical staff carrying the severely wounded up the right side of the ramp. As they were carried up the ramp, I could see all the high-tech, life-saving equipment attached to their litters. Tubes flowed in and out of the tattered bodies of the young American warriors who had their flesh ripped apart, and their insides rearranged from the violent impact and high velocity of projectiles that had pierced their flesh. A wave of gratefulness and gratitude swept over me as Martinez grunted and struggled to bear the weight of my battered body, upon his cracked ribs and his concussed brain. I could have easily been one of those brave warriors laying on a litter, wavering in the delicate void between life and death, and being carried out on my back. Yet here I was, with the assistance of a random Marine, who cared enough about me and recognized the pride I had in being a combat infantry soldier, leaving Iraq, standing on my own two feet. Martinez gently laid me down on a litter that was affixed to the floor, I could hear him breathing heavily and grunting from the pain. Martinez made his way to the row of seats that lined the wall of the C-17 from front to back. He took off his USMC Desert cami top and sat it on the back of the seat, leaned his head back, closed his eyes, and drifted off to sleep. The medical crew ran back and forth in the cargo hold of the C-17, prepping all of the wounded for the five-hour flight from LSA Anaconda to Ramstein Air Base in Germany. One of the in-flight medical staff approached me just before takeoff to check on me and see if I needed anything before takeoff. The last dose of morphine had run its course, and I was left dealing with the raw and uncensored pain of my injuries. I asked the in-flight doctor for a dose of morphine before our flight. He looked at my charts and returned with another fresh dose of morphine to ease my overworked pain receptors a short time later. The sound of the hydraulic pumps of the ramp of the C-17 signaled that it was time to take off. The ramp reattached itself to the rest of the C-17, and the bright lights inside the cargo area dimmed. I laid on the litter as the massive C-17 took off from LSA Anaconda. I closed my eyes and tried to sleep, but the loud sounds of beeping from the life-sustaining medical equipment and the groans of those severely wounded haunted my eardrums. I stared at one of the soldiers who had been placed in a medically induced coma as he laid on his litter that appeared to be suspended in the air. I watched the rise and fall of his chest as it was being facilitated by a ventilator, forcing air into his lungs. The only thing I wanted was to go to sleep, but no sleep would come to my eyes because I could not simply ignore the chilling sounds of my fellow service members clinging to life. I tried to drown out the noise by focusing on the sounds of the jet engine but there was no relief for my ears. I wanted to put my fingers in my ears, but due to my new war injury, plugging my ears with my fingers was an activity of the past that I could no longer participate in. So I did what I had been doing the last seven months and dealt with it. It was the longest but shortest flight of my life. Our plane touched down at Ramstein Air Base and the C-17 ramp slowly lowered. All of us inside knew instantly that we were no longer in the Middle East as the bitter German cold overpowered the cabin. It was early in the a.m., and the sun was starting to make its presence known. Martinez awoke from his slumber and donned his USMC cami top. He made his way over to me and helped me up to my feet, but I could not physically get up. Together, and for the last time, he placed my right arm over his shoulders and escorted me down the C-17 ramp. At the bottom of the ramp, I paused to not only catch my breath, but also to take in the beauty of Germany. It had been 16 years since the last time I had been in Germany. Vivid memories of living in Hamburg and Friedberg, when my father was stationed there back in 1989. I was only five years old at the time. The moment was surreal, and my emotions were tugging at all my heartstrings. I had made it out of Iraq alive and was grateful, but I was conflicted looking at all the severely wounded being unloaded. Why was I fortunate enough to be able to walk out of Iraq, and these guys were not? I thought about all the soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen who had lost their lives over the last six months fighting the same war. The guilt of surviving started to cut me deep, and the guilt of knowing that my brothers in Alpha Company were still in Iraq fighting bothered me. My war was officially over. However, my war was only seven months long, and I never got the chance to fire my weapon at the enemy once, and that did not sit well with me at all. Martinez and I made our way to a row of awaiting buses, ready to chauffeur us on a short commute from Ramstein Air Base to Landstuhl Regional Medical Center. Upon arriving at Landstuhl Regional Medical Center and unloading from the buses, Martinez and I said our final goodbyes as we prepared to go our separate ways and have our injuries treated. I cannot thank you enough for all the help. You didn't have to do that, I said to Martinez. I know, but I could tell you were hurting and needed help. There was no way I was going to let you sit there helplessly. I hope you have a speedy recovery and get to see your family soon. Same to you as well. I hope you get healed up and get back to your buddies in the sandbox, I told Martinez. With a single fist bump, we went our separate ways. Take care of yourself, Pitts. You as well, Martinez. It has been 15 years since I said goodbye to Martinez, and I still wonder what became of him in his life. I can only hope and pray that God Almighty has been good to him and blessed him and his family because of his willingness to help me, a stranger, a wounded brother in arms, in one of my darkest times. So if you are still out there, Martinez, and you are reading this book, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart once again. You proved to me on a personal level why Marines are the few and the proud by living out the Marine Corps' motto, honor, courage, and commitment in helping a wounded U.S. Army soldier. The medical staff placed me in a wheelchair and wheeled me inside the massive medical facility. My first stop on the road to recovery was the dentist to repair the damage to my teeth. The Army dentist shot me full of Novocaine and proceeded to smooth out and fill in all the jagged pieces in my mouth that used to be my teeth. Lucky for me, the damage to my teeth did not require extensive dental work or surgery. I was then wheeled to a hospital room and placed in a hospital bed. It was still early in the morning, and the light filled the room. The walls in the room were bright white and stood out. The smell of the freshly cleaned and super soft sheets on my hospital bed put me at ease. Compared to my living conditions the last seven months, I felt like I was in a five-star resort hotel not an army hospital. I laid my head back on the soft, fluffy, white cloud of a pillow and closed my eyes. For the first time in a long time, I closed my eyes with the absence of fear, and I felt safe. Gone was the anxiety of living every minute in fear of a rocket attack, a sniper attack, or an IED attack. The peace of mind I had in that moment was amazing, but it did not feel real. It felt borrowed like someone could come and take it from me at any moment. Soon after, my doctor detailed to me that he would place a titanium rod into my radius to stabilize it. Screws and titanium plates would be installed on my ulna and my humerus as well. I was scheduled to undergo my first operation in the morning. The way the doctor explained everything to me sounded simple. I figured that I would be back to my normal self in no time, even possibly rejoin my unit. With my single functioning arm, I checked my email for the first time. I had received a message from Captain Shaw. He informed me that they were looking for the guys who detonated the IED. He described the IED as two 155mm Howitzer shells filled with explosives. It detonated directly under the driver's seat where I had been sitting. As I read Captain Shaw's email, a chill went up my spine as I realized exactly how close I was to not only being killed in action, but blown into tiny pieces along with Bill and Pint. Just before the blast went off, we were all standing outside the driver's side door of Alpha 2-6 chatting. Was the trigger man asleep? Maybe he was distracted. We will never know why. All I know is that we all survived and walked away with our lives. I spent the rest of the day relaxing in my hospital bed waiting for my operation the following morning. I was mentally and physically exhausted. The only thing I wanted to do was lay in my bed. I had no desire to converse, watch TV, or even think. I just wanted to lay in my bed and embrace the peace, the quiet, and the feeling of being safe. The solace soothed my tormented mind and soul, and I soon fell into a deep and heavy sleep. I was awakened a short time later by medical staff, and I was carted off to the operating room where they proceeded to poke and stick me with needles as they prepared me for my first major operation, the OR, operating room. was bone-chilling cold, the bright OR lights reflected off of the shiny bluish-greenish tiles that lined the OR walls. I looked up from the operating table at the bright light overhead and all the medical staff as they crowded around me as the anesthesia put me to sleep. Upon waking up, the first thing I saw was my heavily bandaged left arm. The pain was intolerable. The incision where the doctor cut me open to insert all the hardware was on fire. I attempted to ball my hand in a fist, but I couldn't. I then tried to lift my arm, and there was no movement. My arm! What's wrong with my arm? I shouted and panicked. The doctor who had done my surgery emerged at the sound of my panicked, stricken cry. He said that the operation went well and that what I was experiencing with my left arm was normal. However, he explained that my nerves suffered a lot of damage from the blast and the surgical incisions. Fear of not being able to use my left arm ever again started to set in. The doctor further explained that he was unsure how much mobility and function I would regain in my left arm. I would have to give my body time to heal and recover before I knew the full extent of the damage. Tears started to swell up in the back of my eyes after seeing my arm and hearing the doctor say that I might not regain use of it. The thought of being a 20-year-old with a crippled left arm and living the remainder of my life as such petrified me. The dreaded thoughts of the unknown and what if started to play out in my mind. I could feel the tears coming, but I refused to give them an early release from their seven-month prison sentence in my tear ducts to sojourn with my face. I choked back the tears, fixed my stern face, and pushed down all my emotions and fear deep down again where no one could detect them. After being brought back to my room, I instantly picked up the phone and called my mom. I needed to hear her sweet and soothing voice reassure me that God was in control and that she was praying for me. The doctor said I might not regain use of my left arm, Mama. I complained to her. I could feel the tears trying to break free again. But once again, I forced them to submit to my iron will. Are you okay, baby? She asked. I lied to her and said, I'm fine, Mom. Why I told her I was fine when I knew I was not was beyond me. Maybe I did not want her to worry about me. Maybe I wanted her to see how tough of a soldier her baby boy had become. You are resting in the Lord's hands and you're going to be okay. I promise you that. I have been praying for you, and so many other people have as well. You are covered in more prayers than you even realize. God is on your side, and you are going to come out of this stronger and better, she reassured me. Talking to my mom slightly put me at ease, but I still had those negative thoughts and doubts that I would have to contend with on my own once we hung up the phone. I remained hospitalized at Landstuhl Regional Medical Center for another two days until it was time for the final leg of my journey back to the United States. The ramp of the C-17 hung open as the staff started to load the wounded onto the plane. I would be back on American soil in 18 hours. I was given a fresh dose of morphine, and I slept the entire flight back. In the twilight of the night, the C-17 made its descent, to the Andrews Air Force Base airfield in Maryland. We were gently unloaded from the C-17 and loaded on a military ambulance bus that would take us to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. I stared out the window as the bus made its way down the streets of Washington D.C. The bus crossed over a bridge and I could see the moon's reflection off the Potomac River. The lights from the monuments of our nation's capital shine bright in the distance. I reminisced of my adolescence. In the brief time my family spent in Washington, D.C. I was roughly ten years old then. Ten years later, I was here again, but under different circumstances. The bus came to a halt in front of Wormack, where there was a long line of people waiting to greet us. As I was taken off the bus and placed on a stretcher, someone approached me and draped a quilted American flag over me. Welcome home, soldier. A thunderous applause shook the night as I was wheeled down the sidewalk lined with Warmack medical staff from the rear of the bus to the hospital entrance to welcome me home. We love you, and thank you for your sacrifice, the staff yelled. There are no words that I can find to describe the multitude of feelings I felt at that moment. To this day, I still cherish that moment and hold it close to my heart. I was officially back home in the country that I loved and narrowly died for. It was a blessing to be back in the USA.